Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. Good morning, Garden Church. It's been a few weeks since I was able to teach, but you've had some good friends, so if you haven't been with us, we've started a series called Empowered, and in this series, we're looking at um, uh, how the, the Holy Spirit empowers us for life. And we had a couple of friends come. Pastor Julian from Boston came and talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit and he did a pr- uh, prophecy training. And then we had Alex and Hannah Absalom come out and uh, they're part of our community and they, they did an amazing job talking about ministry of the Spirit empowers us for mission and vocation. Um, and then last week I had my friend from the UK, uh, Pete Hughes is, was in town and he preached on how the Spirit empowers us for worship. Um, and so we are looking at this topic of how the Holy Spirit empowers us for life. Um, and I'm excited to be with you today. Uh, I, I was um, thinking about this, what topics to teach on, and this is one that I was, I was praying about for a while, um, mainly because I feel like there's a theme in culture right now that is so obvious. Um, it's the, a characteristic that culture and society is marked by in this moment, primarily fear. And I was thinking about this time 
I'm going to try to fix this, um, where in our society and culture, some of the major issues we face cause us to live from a place of fear. And it's not hard to look at. Um, we are still in a, a COVID crisis, and it seems like the news is saying that things are going to... Um, is this clicking really bad? Or is it just me, Seth? Yeah, it's bothering me. Um, I'm going to grab a handheld, okay? There we go. I'm going to fix this problem. Decisive leadership is one of my strengths. Um, okay, um... <clears throat> <laughs> so, uh, we're coming out of this COVID crisis, and, uh, uh, and it seems like the news is saying it's, it's ticking up again all of a sudden, uh, and then, uh, you know, I read the news, and then there's this thing called monkeypox, um, so let's, yeah, so it's like, okay, there's that, and we can joke about that, but inflation is here, economic uncertainty is causing all sorts of issues, um, uh, number one stress right now that people face is personal finances. It's one of the number one issue they face is how are they going to survive the economic uncertainty that we're in. We are uh, witnessing a war in mainland Europe, in Ukraine, and Russia. It's impacting loads of people. Um, it's causing famine um, because we're part of a global society. So where there's a, a war in mainland Europe, uh, there's famine and hunger in Southeast Asia and Africa. That's happening right now. Last week, one of the worst racially motivated terrorist attacks in the United States in, la- in the last 100 years took place. Um, there's, uh, it's tragic and heartbreaking, and I've been talking with um, people in our church, people of color, who are, are, are saying uh, that incident in, uh, in, Ohio, sorry, in, in New York uh, creates all sorts of re-traumatization and issues of fear here in Long Beach, let alone anywhere else. I was talking to somebody in Florida um, a pastor in Florida who's talking about um, how that issue brought all sorts of fear out in himself. We live in a time where fear is the loudest headline. There's so many reasons to live from this place of fear. Politics continue to spiral towards new forms of extremism. We've created labels and phrases to categorize our enemies on the other side. So we see them as problems rather than fo- uh, brothers and sisters. Um, so I'm going to take this, <laughs> I'm going to take this tail off. No, baby, you want to help me? You want to come on stage and help? Come, why don't you come up here? I'm good. I got it. Thank you, love. Any chance I can get to get you to hold the microphone and share something, I will. According to one report I read this week, one in five Americans say that anxiety has had a significant impact on their daily life. One in five while over 52% say anxiety has at least some impact. So 52% of Americans saying anxiety has some impact on their daily life, anxiety. Younger generations were even more likely to report about this. They said uh, 71% of Gen Z and 58% of millennials said that anxiety impacts their daily life. 71% of our youth. Seven out of 10 of those that came in in our youth. 60% of millennials and 68% of Gen Z said that they often feel like they can't get control of their thoughts. There's this whole conversation about self-doubt from this study. What I see right now, 
what I'm witnessing, what I'm observing as a father who thinking about his kids who will inherit the world we, we create for them is that there's a crisis. There's a problem we face like never before in the West. And I can't help but think with all of these things, my prayer lately has been Jesus come back soon. And it, it, I've never really prayed that growing up. It was never somebody who was like, oh my gosh, please come back. There were, I, I'm in this place where I'm overwhelmed by the growing tragedies we face. Is anyone else here in this situation? That as I was praying about this, I was thinking about this topic because what I see so clearly in scripture, the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit comes to do is something we don't see. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about our reaction to it as the church. And I'll speak to that in a second. But I felt like God was bubbling up faith for this moment. This is our time. This is our moment as the church where the world is living in fear and anxiety. We know how the story ends. But do we live like it? Do we live in this middle moment, in this now and not yet reality of God's arrival and heaven breaking through kingdom on earth, rule and reign, and yet not fully realize? Do we live in this place empowered by the presence of God or are we living by the news? Are we living by the cultural narratives of fear, the impossibility syndrome? Anxiety is destroying our bodies and our brains. And the church, this is our moment. This is our moment to show the world how to be human again. And I believe that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live as humans, as the, out of the intentionality of God's creation. He created us to live in perfect relationship with the divine. He breathed his spirit into us. Our original intent was breath of life, oxygen of the spirit of God. And in a world filled with fear, we need a fearless church. What I want to talk about today is how the Spirit empowers courage in a world of fear. Are you with me? I want to anchor this in a story that's familiar. Go to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at a few passages of Scripture. But I want to talk about how the Spirit empowers courage. And I don't want to talk about courage the way culture defines it. I want to talk about biblical courage. But let's anchor it in the narrative of Scripture. For us, we are a Bible church and a spirit church. There's no, there's no debate about this. The only biblical church is a spirit-filled church in the scriptures. So if you're like, oh, are you a word church or a spirit? Well, you can't be a word church in the Bible without the Holy Spirit. If you just follow the book of Acts and see. So if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's going to push you towards the scripture. And if you read the scriptures, it's going to push you towards the Holy Spirit. It's this great cycle. So get comfortable with both. Acts chapter four, verse one, it says this, the priests... And the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. All right, before this is chapter three. In chapter three, Peter and John had witnessed the resurrected Christ. They were filled, they were filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter two. They go to the temple um, uh, on one random day. They see a man begging for money who was paralyzed. They heal the man. And then they proclaim that the reason he's healed is because the, uh, the, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And Jesus has the authority to heal 
heal. And then they, they, they preach this and all these people are seeing this miracle and they believe in Jesus. So the religious leaders, the same leaders who crucified Jesus, bring Peter and John, and this is what happens. So that's where they were greatly disturbed because the, of the apostles' um, the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So right away, the church is over 5,000. After Pentecost, which we'll talk about on June 5th, which is Pentecost Sunday, we'll look at the first Sunday morning, over 3,000 people are baptized. A couple days later, now it's 5,000 people. People are always like, oh, we got to be like the biblical church. We got to get small. I'm like, what are you talking about? Within a week, there's 5,000 men in the church. Anyways, um, that was for a couple of you. For those of you listening online who have deconstructed the church and don't want to participate in the body of Christ, but you want to listen to a podcast and do your own thing at a coffee shop, that means you. Here we go. pastor took off the gloves for a moment. I'm just commentating for you, my inner life. Yeah. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Anas, Annas, and the high priest was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and, other, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, highlight that in your Bible, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was paralyzed and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all of the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Can I get an amen? amen? Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's a mic drop moment. That's like if, you're, if someone was filming it, they would capture it, put like words on it, and it would go viral. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and I love this, and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Oh, come on. Oh, it's so good. You got the PhDs of Judaism. The powers and rulers and authorities that have the ability to say you're a heretic, you will be crucified like your Messiah. Um, and they, they were astonished at their rhetoric. They're Galilean hicks, remember? They're not educated. They're ordinary men. In fact, it's, they're taking notes, unschooled. There's no rabbinic school that these people have went to. There's, they're ordinary men. They're fishermen, in fact. But they had been with Jesus. I would love one day that people would take note that I had been with Jesus. Yeah. But you see, this is a fascinating story because just a couple months earlier, like just a couple of months, 
this isn't the same Peter. Just a couple of months earlier, this is not what happens when, when Peter is confronted with a situation that requires courage. In fact, go to Mark chapter 14, verse 66. I just want to show you that Peter in this moment is a different person. In just a couple of months, I mean, so, so Jesus is crucified and then there's 50 days and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then a couple of days later, this moment happens. But the day before the crucifixion, so like, let's just call it 55 days, rough number, under 60. Peter is in another situation, verse 66 of, of Mark chapter 14. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, okay? So he's in Acts 4, he's in front of the high priest himself. Now it's a servant girl. When she saw Peter warming himself up by the fire, she looked closely at him. You are also with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. So he's in a moment, Jesus is, is captured by the guards. He's brought into the courtyard of the high priest where the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rulers and elders question Jesus before they send him to Pilate. So Peter is outside that courtyard event. And now it's a servant girl. Just imagine Peter warming himself up by a fire. This is the image. And I want you to think of Psalm 1 for a moment. Sit in the seat of mockers. Okay, you got that? You can read Psalm 1 another time. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you are talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. And then he takes off. When the servant girl saw him there, she said to those surrounding, this is the, a fellow of one of them. Again, he denied it a second time. After a little while, those who were standing near him said, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore, I don't know this man. I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed. A second time, Peter remembered the word that Jesus spoke to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So under 60 days, Peter, when confronted with a moment that requires courage, he does what culture formed him to do, to take the least, the, the, the least dangerous path the most convenient path, the most comfortable path to deny Jesus. He denies Jesus. In the moment his best friend, his rabbi needed him, he denies even knowing him to a servant warming himself up by a fire. But 60-something days, 50-something days later, now brought before the Sanhedrin court, he can't help but say, you crucified the Savior. There is no other name in heaven to be saved. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. I've witnessed this, and it's not just the evidence of resurrection. Something else happened. It's the presence of God. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter let something else come out. In that moment where things are beginning to shake by the courtyard, warming himself out by the fire, when he begins to shake with fear, something comes out. What comes out of you? That's a, that's a nice biblical Sunday answer. Thank you so much. And it's probably true for you. But what comes out of you? 
Wow. For those of you that are listening at home, one of, two of the audience members' congregation said P. And if we were playing Jeopardy, that is no. What comes out of you when you're afraid? When you're anxious? When the world is shaking around you and you don't know how you're going to pay rent? What comes out of you when you have conflict with a friend in a text message uh, thread and you don't know where you stand relationally? What comes out of you? Fear, anxiety, worry. You begin to create a narrative of how you've been wronged. You begin to stress out about how you'll make it. You live from a space of uncertainty and the world has conditioned you towards fear. Not faith, not courage. You have been created to live in perfect loving relationship, but your brains have been neurally transformed. You have neural pathways towards fear. Because this is the culture we're swimming in. Are you with me? Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven says, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, dunamis, love and self-discipline. The spirit God gives us is not one of lacking mental or moral strength or cowardice, timidity, but the spirit gives us power, boldness, courage to live from a different world. But we live in this cultural moment in a moment where fear reigns in our lives. I don't think we realize how bad it's gotten. We can talk about the stats, but we don't realize how we've been formed into a dominant mechanism that has control over our decisions. Dr. Caroline Leaf, in her book, great book, Switch on Your Brain, she's a psychiatrist, a neuroscientist, and she she demonstrates how the, the biblical truths of Scripture line up with neuroscience and psychology. It's a great book. She says, when we distort, listen to this, when we distort love and truth, we wire this perversion into our brains and in a sense create a brain damage. This is not an exaggeration because our brains are wired for love, not fear. And therefore all the circuits, neurochemical, neuropsychological, neurobiological, electromagnetic, and quantum are geared up for healthy, not toxic thinking. If we allow ourselves to learn fear, it creates chaos and havoc in our brains. She goes on to say neural pathways are created in our minds by repeatedly thinking the same thoughts, which ultimately create a personal mindset. So she uses the illustration of uh, like taking a machete and hacking, hacking a path through the jungle. That's how our brains create neural pathways. So it's helpful for things like hey, how to get dressed in the morning and brush our teeth. We just do that over and over again. So we just don't have to think about how do I brush my teeth today? Let me YouTube how to brush my teeth today. We just naturally learn how to do those things or how to remember our kids' names. That's neural pathways working, creating uh, uh, brain uh, cells. It's, it's creating, it's literally building proteins in your brain that, uh, that electric, electrical transfer of in- information goes super fast. It's a highway, you could say. But it's unhelpful when that thought is toxic. Like when you get that text message and it's a little vague and you immediately go to insecurity and self-doubt. Or when you walk into a room and you're more concerned about what people will think about you, about what you look like, about what you know, about what you'll sound like, than walking into the room wondering what divine encounter God might have for this room. 
because you're now there. See, I want, what I want to talk about is the Spirit empowers courage. The Spirit's going to empower you to live from heaven's perspective towards earth. This is something I've been dreaming about, thinking about, studying, trying to understand that we live with all of these cultural moments of crisis. And it seems like the best thing we can offer the world is to escape it. It seems like as Christians are worried about California, they just want to leave it, right? I know what we got to do. We got to go to God's country in Idaho or Texas or Florida. Yeah, go where it's red. I'm going to move from Long Beach to Orange County because it's safer there for Christians. Uh. (laughs) Dinner table conversations with some of you. Do you not realize if all the Christians go, who's going to win? We were made for this. And if you read historical accounts of the church, the church thrives in opposition. We thrive when it doesn't make sense for Christians to live there. Like during the first bubonic plague, who took care of all the sick people? The Christians. When there was an orphan crisis, who created the first orphanage? Christians. When there was a lack of education and people were drinking and, and going crazy, Um, with alcohol, who created moderation in universities? Christians. This is our moment. If we think our moment is posting on Instagram and Facebook and debating people online, you will fail to live as a resurrected witness of Jesus Christ. But if you recognize that God wants to bubble something out so that when things shake, what shakes is divine. It's Jesus, not P. And anything else... (laughs) Wake up, church. You need the presence of God to give you courage for this moment. You need to have a mindset that's shaped in the image of Christ, a mind of Jesus. He wants to give you supernatural solutions for your everyday life. He wants to empower you to live as a teacher, as a graphic designer, as a business owner, as a a homeschool mom or dad. He wants to give you divine revelation for that vocation so that your solutions come, it's not up here, right here, from the presence of the Holy Spirit with you. But the problem is you've been conditioning your brain with a highway towards fear in the world. We need new ways of thinking. So Peter, formed by a world of fear, responds the only way he knows how. I never knew him. He had been conditioned to protect himself, to self-justify his decisions. This is the best way. He had developed neural pathways formed over a lifetime into his brain that made it easy for him to deny Jesus. Your brain is designed, according to science, to use the least amount of energy as possible to come up with a conclusion. So for him, it was a no-brainer. But I wonder how much he regretted that decision. I wonder how much, if he, as he wept bitterly, He said, give me another chance. Give me another chance. And then Jesus is raised from the dead and they're like, hey, his body's not there. He's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And then that that meal, the the last scene in John's gospel where he's warming himself up by another fire and, and rather than saying, shame on you, Peter, for denying me, he says, do you love me? Feed my sheep, do you love me? Feed my lambs, do you love me? You know that I love you. It wasn't rebuke, it was gentleness. What comes out of Jesus when he's disowned and betrayed by his best friend? (laughs) Come on. What comes out of you when you're disowned and betrayed by close friends? 
I was talking with our staff a couple weeks ago. I was doing this uh, little devotional in our staff meeting. I was saying, you know, what I long for our leaders at the garden is to have Jesus-like reactions. Like the, the reaction to the Christ. I'm saying this from the stage. This is not how I react. My wife laughs the loudest. <laughs> she knows. Broken. But this is my prayer. This is my longing. This is the work, the deep work we do. I want to react like Jesus in that moment. Not with control, not with fear, not with manipulation, not with anger, not with hostility, not with judgment, not with moral superiority, but, hey, do you love me? Cool. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, has an opportunity again. This time it's in front of the whole court. And he stands up and he does not regret his decision. Verse 20, uh, 14, it continues. I just want to continue on. We'll, we'll get through this eventually. Oh, we got time. Good. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to go in an hour and 30 minutes today. So here we go. Just That was a joke. That was a joke. Some of you ready for brunch. Here we go. Verse 14, it says, but since they could see, so they were ordinary men been with Jesus, but since they could see the man, this is so great. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Which I just want to say, in this moment, I think the evidence of healing and transformation will speak for itself, right? So where the world is in crisis, where the world is demanding, you know, a verdict, like we're not living in that time anymore. We're living in a time where the proof is in the pudding. The evidence of a transformed life is the most important. I was just with a group of pastors this last week, and one of the questions someone asked me was like, hey, what gets you excited? What, who, like, who are the people that get you excited uh, to ask questions from? And I said, honestly, these days, it's not about people who know a lot of things. I want to ask questions to people who are old and lived a really good life. I want to ask questions to people who are in ministry for a long time and their kids still love Jesus. And they still love their spouse. And they're still part of a local church. Like, I, I, I don't know a lot of those people. I don't know a lot of faithful. Bill, Bill Doctrine's one of those people. I, I don't know a lot. I, those are the people. I want to ask them questions. I, want to, I don't care about all the success and the books and the things. I want to know, did, your, did you love your wife in a way that she knew you loved her more than the church? Your kids grew up not regretting they were pastor's kids. They loved being pastor kids. I want to hear that story. Anyway, so we, we, we have to bring evidence through life. So if you just say, hey, well, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you with your, you know, spiritual ways of manifestation. I want to manifest my dreams. This person was blind and now they can see. This person was addicted and now they're set free. This person struggled with defining themselves through their sexuality, and now they have an identity far greater than that. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these guys? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But stop this thing from spreading any further. To stop it, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Okay, so they called them back together commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, I love their reply. Well, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. Ask for us. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Can't help ourselves. We're witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Verse 21, it says, after further threats, 
they let them go. So they threatened them even more. And they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who, had, was, who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So all of a sudden, Peter, not leading from fear, now leading with faith, not distracted, not allowing his inner life to be dictated by fear. He now pours out with a certain kind of faith where he's willing in the midst of threats, say, I can't help myself. This is true. I can't help but speak about what I've seen and what I've heard and what comes out of him is faith and courage. And I believe God wants to give you courage to live as a redemptive presence in this world here and now. And what we need are disciples who live with courage, a courageous fidelity to scripture, a courageous fidelity to orthodoxy, a courageous faith to move from shallow Christianity to deep spiritual discipleship. You see, COVID exposed how shallow Christianity really was. If anything, COVID exposed how shallow the church was, the lack of depth followers of Jesus really had. It revealed the fragility of our churches. And what I have to say is the next crisis that awaits us is not the time to practice courageous faith. The time to practice courageous faith is in now. You don't go to the finals hoping to practice free throws in the final shots. You practice free throws before you get to the finals. And so many of us, we were ill-prepared for what happened to, in the last two years. And it was a political division. It was a social division. It was a spiritual. For how many conversations for the love of Jesus I had about masks and no masks and vaccines and vac no vaccines. I found very few people. I do know some people that had differing opinions and they stayed. They stuck it out. How many people were upset because we talked about racial justice? They said they, they were so offended by the word justice. I'm like, you can't not talk about justice. His throne is built on righteousness and justice. It is part of what comes out of God. Now we do need to reframe it from biblical justice, not the other thing that's going on in culture, which is basically carpet bombing anyone that disagrees. Oh, did I just offend the right and left? Yes. We need a biblical worldview. And that will always offend any other worldview that doesn't align to this truth or scriptures. We need courageous fidelity to orthodoxy. We need to center ourselves around Jesus. And we need to practice our faith in a way that produces new neural pathways. You see that? We've allowed our political affiliations to dictate our spiritual life. We've allowed the cultural deformation of identity and sexuality to prevail. And we've lacked the courage to offer a better way. I'm not talking about posts. I'm not talking about papers. I'm not talking about tell me what you believe through uh, uh, um, position papers. I'm talking about offering the world a better way to live so that they look at us and say, oh my goodness, I want what they have. Instead of, oh my goodness, I never want to be like them. It's not about having the loudest argument. It's about having the loudest life. That's the courage we need in today's era. In a world full of fear, we need to become a fearless church. Peter and John are threatened. 
that's threatened. You know what they do? They rally all the Christians. They demand their rights to worship. And they begin to broadcast revival on the media platform saying that worship is here. Revival is, no, that's not what they do. That's not what happens. No, they, they vote their pers- people into power. That's not what they do. And that's important. Voting's important. I get it. What do they do? Listen to what they do. Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the, chiefs, uh, the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And then skip to verse 29. So they tell them, here's what's happening. They're threatening us. Just a couple chapters later, they'll persecute him. They'll kill him. They'll stone Stephen. Verse 29, now, Lord, this is what happens. They turn the threats of the situation. And look what they do. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Stop them. Nope. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your uh, holy servant, Jesus. And then they prayed and the place where they, were, uh, where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It's not God, take it away. Yes. Let me move to Idaho. <laughs> Let me go to Orange County. No, 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 no. Consider their threats. Consider their threats. Let me speak the word boldly. And would you move with signs and wonders and healing? So it's undeniable. It's not get me out of here. It's let me live in truth. Let me live with a bold truth. And let me demonstrate that truth with the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and bring signs and wonders and miracles that will testify of the resurrection. Lord, consider their threats. And move powerfully. And when they pray this, remember, they were already filled with the Holy Spirit. They're in another room. The room shakes. And they're filled again, which we've talked about. Ephesians 5, chapter 18, chapter 5, verse 18. Paul commands the church to be filled. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's evidence of this. And as a result of the presence of God filling the church, they spoke the word boldly. This is what God wants to do. Consider the threats and enable your servants. Consider the demands, the mandates, and enable your servants. They pray for courage in the face of fear. They pray for boldness. And in that moment, they live from a different place. I want to just speak on this for just a moment. In our culture right now, in this moment, authority, the highest authority in the land is found inside the individual autonomous self. This is what our culture is creating, that the individual autonomous self is the highest divine authority in the Western world. So whatever I feel about myself is the greatest truth I can live from. In our culture, our society now um, creates systems and structures to hold accountable That perspective, I know this is going to offend some of you, but you know what? This is the reality of the land we live in. Culture has made the self the highest authority of the land. And whatever the autonomous self-individual decides, there becomes a power and authority in the land to legislate and govern those decisions for each individual's. 
And we see this over and over again. It's obviously in politics. It's in the, every system we have on society in the Western context. But what we see in culture, in every reality show, in every self-help book, is this lie, which is manifesting as courageous. It's this. Live your truth. This is the greatest lie our culture has given us. That the truest thing about whatever you feel it is, is your greatest truth. And to have courage to live that out is not really courageous. Let me tell you why. Because our culture, our culture, it has a shallow view of courage. Cultural courage is shallow. Cultural courage yells at the top of its lungs. It broadcasts itself as courage, when it, but when it's exposed, it exposes something. It believes for something. But our, cur- cur- our, our real current cultural courage lacks real strength because our, cur- sorry, our cultural courage is fragile. It requires everyone to agree with it. It forces systems to enforce its belief and therefore mob rule will cancel anything that doesn't agree with it. It's not courage. And let me just explain because I was thinking about this uh, because kind of the greatest storytellers of our time is the Marvel franchise. (laughs) Right? Yes, agree. Like Disney has one. You know, owning Star Wars franchise, Marvel franchise, Avatar, Disney, Pixar. These, uh, there's a famous person, a famous professor at USC in 2013. Her name's Bobette Buster, and she was an expert in screenwriting and storytelling. And she said, the cultural artifacts of our day tell you what people are hungry for. And in 2013, she looked at the previous top-selling grossing films of all time. It was Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Toy Story 2. There were all, Avatar, all these stories of superheroes. And all of these superheroes or these these stories had one thing in common. They had an ordinary person that uh, faced a challenge. And in the challenge, they had to have courage to face the challenge and either become fully alive or the living dead. And this is true of every major film that we saw for the last 10 years, but something's changed. If you look at the most recent films that have come out by Marvel, Moon Knight, and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse Madness. What's interesting about these two are these. I find it interesting um, that Marvel films are now dealing with trauma, supernatural, or spiritualism, and the self. Moon Knight reveals the trauma of one man's life that leads him towards a journey of self-discovery and cosmic battle, if you've ever seen it. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse Madness, I'm not going to give this away, but one woman's inability to cope with tragedy and trauma creates a monster that literally destroys the multiverse universe in her attempt to make her autonomous self happy. And she uses her power of witchcraft, spirituality. I think it's fascinating. It's not enough to have infinity stones and cosmic power like Thanos, we now have to mess with multi-dimensions, of course, because we know as humans it's not enough to have superpower. We have to go to heaven and hell. This is what culture is saying. We, uh, this, in the story of the multiverse, it's one person begins to mess with witchcraft and spirituality to gain power over someone else. And the way it's resolved is by one girl trusting her inner self. And her, she just has to trust herself and she can defeat this witch. That's, you don't have to see the movie now. I just gave it to you. 
This is our culture. These are cultural artifacts. They're, they're showing us the mindset. We now live in a world where it's not, um, it's like, I'm just going to go one more, Matrix, the last Matrix, right? So before, if you haven't seen it, you've had plenty of time. Before <laughs> one, two, and three, you have the architect, modernism. Everything is in perfect order. And then there are these little pockets that emerge and they begin to distort like a virus, the Matrix. But in the new Matrix, it's not an architect, it's the analyst, He's a psychologist, a therapist, and he's literally saying the people in the matrix long to be in the matrix because they love the emotions of it. And his whole task is to mess with people's emotions. He is literally blinking at us. This is about artificial intelligence and algorithms of our current media and tech companies. We don't see it, but this is what's happening. You guys are like, who is this guy? What are you saying? This is what keeps me up at night. I love talking about this. I'm going to do a five-part series on multiverse uh, madness because it speaks all to say uh, our current culture says live your truth and they call it courageous, but it's not courageous because they force everyone to affirm their truth. Real courage is living, knowing who you really are, knowing who Jesus is and standing from that space with boldness, despite what everyone else thinks. Biblical courage is deep work. Biblical courage, it doesn't need to be loud. Biblical courage is David as a boy, quietly kneeling in the valley of Elah, as he stands between a giant and the Philistine army and the uh, Israelite army behind him, knowing that it's not his battle, it's God's battle. Biblical, biblical courage is Daniel quietly resisting an oppressive regime by kneeling in prayer behind closed doors only to be thrown into the lion's den. Biblical courage is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying we would rather burn for worshiping Yahweh than worship your idols. You see, biblical courage is so much quieter than culture, quieter than culture. Biblical courage sits with uh, the deep, uh, the true self. It deals with fears. It deals with misplaced identities first and it surrenders its own ways to biblical truth and lives from obedience. And when you have that kind of courage, you can stay quiet and faithful to capital T truth. And that, brothers and sisters, offers the world a better alternative. I want our church to speak the word of God boldly. But more than speaking the word of God boldly, I want you to live the word of God boldly. It's hot. I need need a handkerchief in here. Somebody just snorted over there. I heard you. I got you. How do you grow in courage? Are you guys good? Maybe give me like three more minutes. We'll wrap it up. Appreciate Ariel. Joshua, how do you grow in spirit-empowered courage? Well, I feel like Joshua gives us the answer. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, one of my favorite passages. In fact, uh, Dallas Willard said the number one spiritual discipline for every believer is to memorize scripture. Number one. And he said, of all the verses, you should start with it. This is one of them. It says this, verse 6, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. Verse seven, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep the book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. 
then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous three times. Remember, in ancient Near Eastern context, when writing or speaking to an oral culture, you didn't have emojis or caps lock to highlight something. You had repetition. So if something's written three times, it's, it's basically caps lock emojis. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Three times. Why? If you had a hermeneutic, an interpretation of Scripture, why do you think God told Joshua to be strong and courageous? What do you think the reasoning was? To remember it? Yep. What else? Nailed it. He was probably full of fear and insecurity. Remember, he was taking over after Moses. I mean, the guy, Moses, like plagues, parting the Red Sea. We're talking the greatest leader in Israel's history. And it's, his book starts with, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's how Joshua 1 begins. Now you're going to replace him. And then it goes on. Be strong and courageous. And listen to what it says. It says, how will Joshua be faithful to the strong and courageous calling on his life? How will he lead these people to prosper in the land that was given to them? It says, number one, obey the word. Do not turn from the right or left and you will be successful. Then it says, keep the word on your lips. And the last thing is to meditate day and night and you will be prosperous. So obey, keep it on your lips and meditate. Now, meditation is not this like, you know, enlightenment thing we think about where we want to detach ourselves from everything. The Hebrew word for meditate is translated to growl, coo, mutter, read in an undertone, to proclaim. Isaiah 31 verse 4 says, the lion or the young lion growls over his prey. And that's the same Hebrew word for meditate. Eugene Peterson says the the best way to translate the Hebrew word for meditate is what a dog does to a bone. He gnaws on the bone. In other words, if you want to live from a place of strength and courage, if you want to partner with the Holy Spirit and reform um, your brain towards courage, you need to build neural pathways through meditation. You need to take your thoughts captive and think about the things that you've been thinking about. Take those toxic thoughts captive, present them to Jesus, and offer another way of thinking. It's Dr. Caroline Leaf says this, neural pathways, God has designed the frontal lobe of our brains precisely to do this. Handle these thought projects. She says this perspective is highlighted in the message version of 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Our tools are ready to hand at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity. An undisciplined mind is filled with a continuous stream of worry, fear, distorted perceptions that trigger degenerative processes in the mind and the body. She says we cannot afford not to bring all our thoughts into captivity to Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I want you to live with courage. So you must learn to partner with the Holy Spirit. You must learn to be filled with the presence of God. Open yourself up with the presence of God and partner with the Holy Spirit to create new neural pathways of truth and power in the heavenly mind.
I want, I want you to learn to think from heaven towards earth because I believe the Holy Spirit has you here for a reason. And courage is a choice you step into. It's when Peter is faced again with that same obstacle, that same moment where he can deny it and get off easy. But he realizes he can't anymore because now he has to live from a place of truth. Now he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what he's been waiting, what God has been waiting to do in him. So courage is praying into these things. Courage is acting and living out of these things. Courage is aligning yourself with heaven's perspective and living towards earth. All right, that's all I got. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Spear!